Hey everyone, happy 2022 question show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are across my channel, the question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up and I will answer them here. I record this show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to join the show live, ask your questions, ask follow-up questions, ask questions on the questions on the questions, then join me uh, on a Monday. And there should be an announcement of the next show here on the channel. All right, let's get into the questions. I'll bet you we're going to be talking about James Webb quite a lot today. Cybercharged. Hey, Fraser, James Webb's first weeks are very exciting moments. I wonder if there are cameras on both sides of the telescope with also lights on the cold side for the technical team to see in image if anything's wrong during the deployment. No, there are no cameras at all on James Webb, except for, of course, the cameras that are associated with its instrument, um, the, all of the scientific instruments that are going to be used in capturing data, but it can't use those to examine itself. And one of the questions that we just got a lot was like, why doesn't James Webb have cameras on it? And when James Webb was detaching from the Ariane five upper stage, you saw the telescope drifting away. And that was the last time that we were ever going to be able to see a picture of James Webb. And people were saying, like, why was there any kind of cameras? Like, why, how can we not see this? And like, at the same time that this is going on, the Chinese Tianwen orbiter released a tiny little selfie bot that took a picture of the spacecraft in orbit around Mars. And so obviously, if the Chinese mission can do this, why didn't James Webb do this? And of course, NASA has thought about this. And Nancy Atkinson wrote a universe today story about this and interviewed some of the people involved and sort of got to the bottom of, of what was the technical explanation for why there weren't cameras involved There's sort of two main themes to it. The first one is, is that the way James Webb is designed with that sun shield to block all the light from the sun, the earth and the moon, then the one side is going to be just incredibly bright. And then on the other side, it's going to be very, very dark. It's going to be really hot on the sunward side and really cold on the shaded side. And so you would need to be able to take a picture on the sun side with one kind of camera. And then you need to be able to take a picture on the shaded side with a completely different kind of camera, probably, as you said, have to light it up. Now you can't if you light it up, then you are introducing heat into that side of the telescope. And the whole point of the sun shield is to cool it down. And then of course, the actual instruments on board James Webb will be generating heat releasing electromagnetic radiation. And so they found that if they included cameras, they would be too much trouble than the value that they would bring that the most value in, in terms of just like what is the health of the spacecraft is they have sensors throughout all the actuators, all the things that the telescope is supposed to do as it was unfolding. And that was the way that they were going to sense the position and make sure that everything was working well. Of course, the other idea was like, why didn't they have a CubeSat? They could just release the CubeSat and it could drift away and take some pictures. But it's important to understand that James Webb has been in development for so long, like 15 years. The development of CubeSats is fairly recent compared to that. And so they didn't have the technology for modern CubeSats back when they were building James Webb. So, so then they got to decide, do we want to add technical risk, add additional cost, to add some additional spacecraft along with Webb, And the conclusion they came to was no, it's just not worth it. So yeah, it would have been amazing to see pictures of James Webb just like in space. But for 
technical, practical purposes, cost, risk, all of that, they decided not to do it. Now, who knows, right? We may get a mission in now a few decades from now to service James Webb, and they'll take some pictures of it then. But until then, uh, we're not gonna be able to see any pictures of Webb until ever. Violet Skydiver. If the universe is expanding, what is it expanding inside of? What's outside the borders of the visible universe that's containing its expansion? Alright, so this is a question we get a lot. And I've done whole videos on this. What is the universe expanding into? But I, you know, I like to answer it every now and then practice my my answer. So the first thing is to understand that when we think about the universe, we imagine this sphere that is getting bigger and bigger, but that's not right. You have to remember that the sphere that you're seeing around you is the observable universe. And it's for you, you specifically violet skydiver, this universe that is 13.8 billion years, this sphere that's around you is centered on you. I see a different observable universe. And that's because I'm seeing the light that's taken 13.8 billion years to go from the beginning of the universe to me today in all directions. And so I can't see any farther than that, because there was no universe before then. But what would the universe actually look like if we were waiting for light to take this time, then what we would see is something that feels a lot more like this grid that goes on forever, just this endless space, it could have been infinite. And so you would just imagine that the universe just goes on in all directions in an infinite amount, or maybe the universe is finite, and it wraps on itself, like some kind of three dimensional game of, of asteroids. And so then if you imagine like this grid that's going on forever, it's not expanding into anything because it's just getting less dense. And you know, when you say like, you've got something that's infinite, and you try to use the term bigger, it doesn't really make sense. Because like, what's bigger than infinite infinite is, you know, you can go bigger infinite. Um, but when you think about like getting less dense, so back early on in the universe, everything was compacted close together, and it was more dense. And over time, the expansion of the universe, and again, you know, it's not like, it's not a great term, the less densification of the universe has been going on, that's been allowing galaxies to get farther and farther apart from each other. But this is just happening forever in all directions. And so the universe isn't expanding into anything. Kenny G. What is the point of more powerful telescopes when we can't even get out of our solar system yet? What can we learn that has real value? Like, I mean, the question that you're asking is like, what's the point of like anything, man? Like, like, what's the point of science? What's the point of exploration of discovery of curiosity of looking beyond the horizon to see what's out there? What is the purpose of scanning the cosmic microwave background radiation to understand the Big Bang to understand the evolution of large galaxies? What is the point of searching for interesting kinds of nebulae star forming regions charting out the expansion rate of the universe, like none of these are ever going to have any impact on us personally. But the point is, is that we are curious about our place in the universe about where did everything come from? Like, why is there something and not nothing is like one of the most basic fundamental biggest questions that we might ask. And the only way to try and answer these questions is with bigger and more powerful telescopes. But don't worry, I mean, these things are a fraction of the cost of a fighter carrier, or even of a stealth bomber or take out pizza or lawn ornaments. So I think that 
we don't know what lines of research turn into valuable engineering. When people first started researching into lasers, they didn't know what they were going to be for silicon semiconductors, they didn't know what they were going to be for. They just explored. And after a while, practical purposes are understood. And so there may or may not be practical purposes of us adventuring into astronomy. Yeah, I can think of some practical things like because of telescopes, we've learned that asteroids are zipping around and we could find an asteroid that could collide with the Earth. We've learned about supernovae. We've learned about the kinds of flares that the sun is capable of putting off like like we have learned about some of the dangers that are out there in the universe waiting for us. And maybe as we gain more information, we'll learn about the dangers as we will attempt to leave our solar system, but we don't want to wait. Let's explore. Let's explore with our eyes first, and then explore with our spaceships and then explore the universe with our eyes first, and then with our spaceships. Johnny Zed, when will James Webb transmit the first image? When we're recording the show right now, we're about three weeks since James Webb launched. And now we're waiting for it to arrive at the L2 Lagrange point. It's about two more weeks until it gets to its final destination of L2. And then we're looking at about five months of calibration and checkout and preparation of the telescope. So I think we're looking at five months from now, five and a half months from now. I wouldn't be surprised if NASA and ESA release an image or two just to whet our appetites. But we're still probably looking at six months before the full real science begins with JWST. They really want to celebrate this telescope. And so the first pick, they're going to look for something really exciting to take a picture from and go, this is it first light James Webb, and we're all gonna love it. So six, six months. Titanium Druid, have you ever completed a Messier marathon? So a Messier marathon is where in one night, you point your telescope at all of the Messier objects that had been identified. I think it's like 110 Messier objects. And it's tricky because for certain parts of the year, many of the Messier objects are hidden behind the sun. So Charles Messier was an astronomer in the 1700s. And he was looking for comets. And he would keep finding these things that confused him or made him think that Oh, there's a com Oh, no, wait, it's that thing that I keep seeing. And so he went and cataloged and he found about 110 of these comet pretenders. And so that way, he would just remind himself whenever he was looking, goes, Oh, no, no, wait, that's the thing I already knew about. And they're very famous things, the ring nebula, the Andromeda triangulum, the great globular cluster in Hercules, there's a lot of these these objects you're very familiar with. And because of their position across the sky, at some point in the year, some of these objects are hidden behind the sun. But in March, if you start looking just after the sun goes down and go all night, just before sunrise, you can observe each one of these objects. And that's called a Messier marathon. Have I done a Messier marathon? No. Um, I don't have great skies. I don't have a really nice view to the south to be able to see them. I don't have a good telescope for it. And it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's sort of like a I don't know, I guess that's why it's called a marathon, right? Tammy Plotner was a writer for universe today, she's passed away, but she would talk about doing a Messier marathon week. 
And so instead of doing them all in one night, she recommended that you take a week and chip away at them. And that gives you a little fudge factor on either side of it. And I think that's a much more reasonable one. So I think I've mentioned a few times that my plan is to build an observatory here on our new universe today headquarters. And I'm going to probably put a fairly nice telescope in there. And uh, I'd love to do an online Messier marathon. I mean, my dream was to like, have a Messier marathon with people around the world where we could sort of stream it in real time. And maybe that's a thing I'll do eventually. But uh, but no, I've never done one. Dean C. What would have capabilities based exploration to the moon been? So uh, that sounds like a fairly complicated question, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So capabilities based exploration is my favorite kind of space exploration. And the gist of it is that instead of choosing some great big audacious goal, like going to the moon, or going to Mars, or going to another star, um, and spending all that money to achieve that goal, you go with the capabilities, you essentially are looking to extend the capabilities of your space exploration program. And so every single mission that you do is a series of steps moving forward. Maybe this time you spend longer in orbit, maybe this time you practice harvesting your own water from an asteroid, maybe this time you try going to a higher orbit, maybe you try keeping more people alive, maybe this time you try growing plants in orbit, like, like the list of capabilities could go on and on and on. And just every time you so you're not really choosing a goal, you're just trying to make your ability to explore space more robust. And I really like it because it can't get canceled in the same way that a moon or Mars like when you think about if you go back to the past, so you had the Apollo missions back ending in the 1970s. And then missions to the moon ended. And then in the late 80s, early 90s, you had Reagan into Bush deciding that they want to try and send people to Mars, but then that got canceled. And then George W. Bush came along and said, Okay, we're going to go back to the moon. And then that got canceled. And then I think it was Obama said they were going to go to an asteroid. And then that got canceled. And then back to the moon. And here we are now a couple of years for the Artemis program to go to the moon, but who knows, they could get canceled as well. And so the problem is that as the government administrations change, the final destination can change as well. But if you just focus on capabilities, you've just got this endless surplus of robust space exploration capability that keeps growing and growing and growing. And so what would that have been to the moon? So I mean, I think you can include the moon in your capabilities based exploration program, you go to higher orbits, you go beyond the moon. And then at some point, the moon is the obvious target to add, you don't, you don't try to build your entire exploration stack its only job is to get you to the moon and put a footprint on the moon. And then as soon as you do, then the whole thing collapses. You want something that's robust and stable it can last for a long time. So I think the moon just would have been an afterthought. It would have been like once they invented aviation, and they were able to fly to Europe, then you could say, Well, could we fly to Iceland? And like, sure, you know, it's icy, it'd be hard to land there. But why not? we can handle that. So I think, uh, you know, do a search for capabilities based exploration, I'll put a link to the video that I did. But also there's a great document from NASA to sort of planning this out. And, and if and if I was the head of NASA, I would switch to a capabilities based program immediately. I think it's great.
More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons, Ron Deal, Ralph Meyer, Bruce Beard, and the rest of our 791 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Pinsante, will Louvoir A be built or do you think we'll go with Louvoir B because of the cost of James Webb? Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get either. Now, Louvoir was part of the four next great observatories proposal that had been suggested by the scientific community leading into the decadal survey, which is done every 10 years. And the most recent decadal survey actually was released a couple of months ago. And so they, they wanted to do Louvoir, which is going to be a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, something in the eight to 15 meter range, maybe bigger. Habex is something that would be able to find habitable exoplanets origins, which would be a successor to James Webb, and be able to look out to the very first forming stars and links, which would be a successor to Chandra and sort of see the universe in x rays. And in the decadal survey document, they talked about the plan now is like some kind of hybrid. So it'll try to bring the capabilities of Habex and Louvoir, but something that's smaller and something that has less technical risk. And so I don't think we're going to see a monster telescope like Louvoir. We're going to see something that is, say, James Webb sized in the six meter range, but it's going to be with the same kind of capabilities as Hubble. So it's going to be able to see in the infrared, ultraviolet, visible light spectrum. And it may have a separate spacecraft that flies that blocks the light and would allow it to be able to perceive planets. And I think James Webb was the learning lesson, which was like, don't jam too much technical risk into one project at the same time. Now, that said, there's a bunch of other interesting technologies that are coming on fast. One is, of course, Starship, which has an enormous rocket fairing capable of launching much larger space telescopes. And so you might be that it's just so cheap that Louvoir or some version of it is back in play, because they don't have to have all this crazy origami to fold the thing out. The other possibility is that they would go the space based construction process. So instead of launching the space telescope in one fell swoop, they might launch bits and pieces of it and assemble the telescope in space, kind of like they assembled the International Space Station. So right now, it's really kind of too early. No official decision has been made on what is going to be the next great telescope. We're gonna have to wait and find out. But I think at this point, don't put your hopes on Louvoir flying. Rowan J. If you look in opposite directions with telescopes, are you potentially looking at two places close together? If you look back in time far enough? This was one of the big questions that astronomers were trying to answer when they observed the cosmic microwave background radiation. They were looking for some kind of repeating pattern where you would see some pattern of temperature variations in the cosmic microwave background on one side of the universe. And then you would see the same pattern on the other side of the universe. And that would tell you that the universe is finite in size and wraps and you're actually looking out in one direction and seeing yourself in the other way. And if you had a telescope powerful enough, maybe you could see the back of your own head looking through the telescope. And they did not see any kind of repeating pattern. The best that astronomers can tell is that the actual universe is vastly larger than the observable universe. And so if it does wrap, it's not within our observable bubble so far. Ben Mad Scientist. Hey, Fraser, there's a lot of talk about pictures of exoplanets. But what about pictures of other stars? How high quality pictures can we get? 
And will James Webb be able to help with this? Yeah, our pictures of stars are not very good. Obviously, our pictures of the sun are terrific. But the only other star that we've actually been able to look at more than a few pixels is Betelgeuse. And that's not great. I mean, you can see a few pixels, get a sense that there's some kind of like star spots blobbies on the surface of the star, but you can't really make out anything. And that's the best that we've got. The way astronomers learn about stars is they pretty much learn everything they need to know about one pixel. So a star, no matter how powerful your telescope is, isn't going to take up more than one pixel on your sensor. So you got to learn everything you can about that one pixel. And the one thing that they do is they break up the light into this giant rainbow spectrum and dark lines and bright lines along that rainbow spectrum tells them essentially the elements that are present inside that star. So you know what the star is made of, or at least what's in the upper atmosphere of the star. The other thing they do is they watch how that star changes in brightness over time. And if it's changing on a very regular basis, maybe you can tell that it has sunspots. If it changes really quickly, maybe it had a giant flare across the surface. Of course, sometimes if it changes, maybe there's a planet passing in front of it, maybe it's part of a binary system. So everything that we know about stars is essentially pulled out of that one pixel that we can see in telescopes. Maybe in future telescopes, more stars will become multi pixel. But but until then, you've just got to work with what you've got. Bassam 696. How is the first single cell organism created? We don't know. Uh, somehow, Earth was just a pile of chemicals. And life somehow got going. And we don't know what was the event that caused it. You now people have done experiments to show that if you take amino acids and you put them in water and similar conditions that were on the early earth, and maybe you zap it with lightning, then you get more complicated chemicals, but you still it's still vastly different than actual the kinds of proteins and DNA and RNA and the things that we have with with modern life. And so we don't really know whatever it was, it essentially had to be able to duplicate itself. And it had to be able to change itself in ways that allow it to adapt to its environment. And so there must have been some kind of just proto life, whatever is the bare minimum life to bootstrap up from raw chemicals, a collection of amino acids in a puddle in the early earth to something that could actually start beginning that evolutionary process. Now, I mean, the theory of evolution tells us all about how we can explain all of the incredible different species that we see today. And you can roll it all the way back to a single ancestor for all living creatures. But we don't know how that ancestor came from the raw ingredients. And the theory of evolution is not its job. It explains how things are changing, and that everything had a common ancestor. But we still don't know the abiogenesis question, where did life come from? And it's one of the biggest scientific questions that we have. We're curious, let's find out. Mark Koziel, can Hubble see James Webb? Sure, actually ground based astronomers, even amateur astronomers with their own telescopes have been able to observe James Webb as it's moving out towards its final spot at L2. I think at this point, it's like magnitude 15. I think the final magnitude is going to be like 17. But some of the Hubble can see all the way out to like magnitude 25. So yeah, it could absolutely pick up James Webb, although it would just be a dot no telescope is gonna be able to see anything more than just a dot. And so but it, it could look at it. Sure. See the dot. 
Sergusi, what if James Webb will return pictures of those galaxies which are located far beyond the edges of the observable universe? How will it affect the expansion in particular? Unfortunately, James Webb is not able to see beyond the edge of the observable universe. Nothing can there is there's nothing to see. You could build a telescope the size of the Milky Way, and it wouldn't be able to see beyond the edge of the observable universe because the edge of the observable universe is not just like how far we can see, but how early we can see everything started then. So there was nothing to see before the beginning. When we look at the cosmic microwave background radiation, we're seeing the light that was emitted from the universe when it was about 380,000 years old. And it was very bright at the time. The entire universe was like the surface of a red giant star. And then all that light was emitted equally all at that time. And so now what we see is this haze of microwaves across the entire sky is that first light as it was first coming out into the entire universe. And so there's nothing beyond that that we can see in the visible spectrum. Now we could see beyond that in gravitational waves, because there was gravitational waves happening earlier, and they're not blocked by the light. But James Webb will only be able to see the first galaxies coming together with more resolution than the best telescopes that we have today. And if you built a telescope that was far bigger, it wouldn't allow you to see farther, we will never be able to see farther. Use nerd, they say a Hubble like repair mission is out of the question for James Webb. Is that really true? It's not really true. James Webb is going to be a million and a half kilometers away from the Earth when say the moon is just shy of 300,000 kilometers. So it's, it's like five times farther than any human being has ever flown. It was never designed to be repaired. But it does have the original docking ring that it was used to attach to its upper stage and the refueling ports. So in theory, you could send a tug up to dock with JWST and bolt onto that ring and then provide station keeping for decades to come. And I think if we really do get to a point where James Webb is running out of fuel, but it's still doing a great job, then they'll plan that mission because it's not going to be that expensive to send a follow on tug to provide additional propellant. But we got really good news this week, it turns out that the launch from the Ariane 5 rocket was so precise, that JWST has far more propellant on board than NASA and ESA were preparing. And so they had originally expected, you know, they, the original was like a five year mission, but they expected they were going to be able to extend it out to 10 years. And now it looks like they're going to get probably 20 years before it finally runs out of propellant and drifts out of the L2 Lagrange point. So that's a long time. And I'm sure the technology will have changed dramatically in 20 years. So who knows what will be possible by then. Tommy Vask, how much training and time and money does it take to build a decent telescope and what materials would be needed for the mirrors? It doesn't take a lot of training. Uh, it can take a lot of time. There's sort of two ways to build your own telescope and the, the telescope that we always recommend is you build a Dobsonian telescope or like a Newtonian telescope with mirrors. And so you're going to need one big mirror, whatever is the size you want for your telescope. And then you're going to need a smaller mirror that's going to be your secondary mirror that will reflect the light. And we've actually got plans in the book that Dave Dickinson wrote the universe today's guide to the cosmos and how to build a telescope with a six inch stovepipe. Uh, so it's not that complicated. The key is the mirrors. And the simple way to build the mirrors is you buy them. 
you can go to like Alibaba or you can buy them from Amazon and you can buy the mirror pre ground. This is the key. You buy it already ground so it already has the shape that you need the primary mirror, the secondary mirror, and some of the other optics you, you buy it as a set. It's not expensive, like less than $100 for the mirror. And then you build the telescope around it. And then there's lots of plans to do that. And it's not that complicated and not that expensive. You could probably build an eight inch Dobsonian telescope for 100 to $200. If you're handy, and there's lots of plans online, instructables, there's tons of plans to be able to do it. But if you want the challenging version, then you grind your own mirror. And that is even cheaper, because you can then just buy the blank mirror segment, the glass, and then you have to grind it. But I I'm telling you now, it's so much work and it's such tricky work and it takes a long, long time and you'll regret it and you'll wish you just bought the pre ground mirrors in advance, but it's a great hobby. Uh, highly recommend it. I plan to do it at some point, build my own telescope. It's, it's not that tough. Anthony Albans, imagine five to 10 years from now, what will be the most surprising discovery from James Webb? We don't know. Like, like that's the best part about this whole process is that when you have a telescope that is capable of dramatically increasing what we can see, looking right out pretty much to the edge of the observable universe, peering through clouds of gas and dust to see newly forming stars and planets, observing the atmospheres of Earth sized exoplanets, and then other stuff that we just don't know. So I, I can't make a prediction. I feel like there's like a lot of expected answers that we're going to get about the evolution of the large scale structure of the universe early on. We will have a much better sense, thanks to James Webb, of how the early universe assembled itself from smaller dwarf galaxies merging into larger galaxies and so on. There's a lot of theories. There's some evidence. James Webb will bring an avalanche of evidence to help make this question get a really good answer. But the best part about these telescopes is the stuff that we don't know. Hubble has tons and tons of discoveries that we weren't expecting. Again, that's what's exciting about this is that we have no idea what wonderful new discoveries we're going to make about the universe, thanks to James Webb. And so really, James Webb is going to help us know what the next questions are. And that's really what each telescope generation does is it, it tells you, all right, here's all the things that you can now see that's going to give you a whole bunch of questions. And then maybe the next telescope will answer those questions and give you a bunch of new questions. And so really, I can't wait. It's like, you know, in the um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they make the big computer and they ask the computers, like, what's the answer to life, the universe and everything? It's just 42. And they're like, Okay, so what's the question? And so it's wanting to know what the questions are, is the thing that's gonna be really exciting. Scrappy childhood. On the Kardashev scale, what level of tech would you need to cross 119 light years in a human lifespan? You've got some specific destination in mind? 119 light years. I think what's that distance? Obviously, that's a ludicrous distance right now. It would probably take, say, the Voyagers would be looking in the hundreds of thousands of years to be able to cross that kind of a distance. So we don't know what kind of technology or when we'll have the kind of technology that's going to be able to do that. But you can make some rough estimates just based on the amount of energy that's required. And you can look at how humanity's energy is increasing historically since 
like the Bronze Age. And you get an estimate then in about seven to 800 years if if our energy use continues, and our technology continues, then we will be capable of sending missions to nearby star systems at a reasonable expense. So I would say 800 years from now, we will see missions going to other star systems, which I'm sure is not the answer you wanted to hear. Jason Strutz, how does a mere citizen get a hold of the raw data from space missions? It would be fun to attempt some amateur science using James Webb akin to that used by the academics. Pretty much all data from NASA space missions and the European Southern Observatory and uh, the European Space Agency is available in some form online. And sort of the way to do this is search for you want to put in the mission that you're looking for, and then look for raw data. So type in say Hubble and then raw data. And that'll take you to the I think it's the Hubble archive. And you can get access to pretty much every observation that's ever been done by the Hubble Space Telescope. There's a lot of people that make really beautiful astrophotography using pictures from Hubble captures. Same thing goes with all of the Mars rovers, all of the data that's being gathered up by them is just being returned. Now, in some cases, some of the scientists get a bit of an advance time to be able to look at the data and work with it for their papers, and then it's released publicly. In other cases, things will say the Vera Rubin Observatory, the data is just going to be dumped onto the internet in real time, exabytes a year. And anyone who wants can just dig through it as long as you know how to program databases and be able to crunch gigantic amounts of data, but pretty much all of it's there and it's available. So you can do this today. Just so just look for raw data, just do do a search for whatever mission you want Hubble raw data, Spitzer raw data, and you should be able to find what you're looking for and, and get to work on it. All right, those are all the questions that we got this week. Thank you everyone for joining me live recorded this show on Monday 5pm Pacific, super fun. Uh, so if you want to be a part of this, there should be a link to the next show and you can join. All right. Thanks for asked questions and we will see you next week. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights about the story and links you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all of my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device. Go to universetoday.com slash audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks, as always, to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.